I don't think you can have this type of disruption in the financial system without some reverberations. I mean, I would expect almost all banks, given that they don't know the stability of their deposit bases, are going to pull back on loans, making loans, which is going to crimp the economic, was going to crimp economic activity, right? Full stop. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Investing Experts podcast. I know you're used to listening to Daniel Snyder. So thanks for having me. I'm Rena Sherbel. Happy to be hosting this episode with Seeking Alpha author and analyst, Cashflow Hunter. For those that have been following the Silicon Valley Bank story, you've noticed Cashflow Hunter's prescient analysis in calling what would happen to that bank perhaps a lot more devastating than he originally thought. We get into that today discussing how he saw it coming, what he saw with Silvergate, what he sees as the best plays given all the different changes and ramifications coming from the financial industry spreading out into different parts of the economy. And of course, we recorded this Saturday, March 18th in mid-afternoon. And already there's many changes since we recorded. UBS has taken up Credit Suisse's cause. There's some news around Signature Bank. We talk about Cashflow Hunter's analysis on Signature Bank and how investors can best position themselves. You can catch his articles on Seeking Alpha. You can type in Cashflow being one word and Hunter being the second. And if you want to follow the tickers of these stocks, just type in the stock ticker on Seeking Alpha and you can see a lot of strong analysis on these stocks and again, the ramifications for the broader marketplace. Cashflow Hunter, thanks for making the time in these uh, crazy days. Thanks for coming on the Investing Experts podcast. Thank you for having me. You know, we're talking the Silicon Valley Bank story, and I think also highlighting the really cogent, strong analysis that we have on Seeking Alpha. And I think you're getting a lot of love out there in the marketplace showcasing what strong analysis can do. I'd love it if you caught us up on where we are in this moment. It's March 18th. Mid-afternoon on Eastern time, as, as long as we're keeping things current, because there's so many changes every day. But given where we've come and gone in the past, let's say, week or so, how do you think it best serves investors to describe this moment in time as it pertains to Silicon Valley Bank and all the repercussions we've seen thus far? Um, I would say uh, violence is probably the most uh, uh, appropriate word to start. Um, and I, I actually, I have not done the, uh, historical analysis, but I think this might be the fastest bank failure ever. Um, it's, uh, you know, the, the bank was, um, you know, the stock was at 265 on uh, Wednesday, uh, before they, the, the, the day before the, the made the announcement, um, it was at 285 uh, that Monday, um, and by uh, Friday morning, it stopped open. It didn't even open for trading, uh, and they filed for bankruptcy officially yesterday. Uh, so just a tremendous amount of value blown up very quickly. Um, and the repercussions of that uh, failure and the, the, the ferocity and speed of that failure uh, obviously have reverberated throughout the uh, financial system, particularly uh, the regional banks, um, which have, uh, you know, a couple of regional banks that, you know, I don't think were in anybody's crosshairs uh, until uh, Silicon Valley really had a problem um, are, um, you know, are really, are, are, in a, potentially in a lot of trouble. I mean, uh, um, uh, First Republic uh, stocks down 80% um, and the bonds have been crushed. Um, we, we focus a lot on the bond market. Uh, my background, originally I was a bond trader actually. And so my firm is uh, a bunch of people that um, I've known uh, and worked with for uh, 20 years plus. And so we have a very deep um, fixed income market background, which definitely helped us in the analysis of this story. Um, but, uh, you know, a company like uh, First Republic, which really uh, was not, I don't think it was on anyone's radar screen, is down 80% uh, from last Wednesday. 
bonds have been killed. Uh, Western Alliance, same thing, uh, down uh, not eighty percent, but down you know call it fifty. Um, and uh, you know, it, to add uh, fuel to the fire, uh, Credit Suisse decided to have some uh, problems of their own this week. So uh, it's 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 caught up um, uh, a lot of uh, financial institutions far and wide. Uh, big and small, um, you know, even people were questioning uh, Schwab uh, this week. Um, and, uh, you know, that stock's got a good 25% or a little bit more from where it was when uh, Silicon Valley had, tr- had its troubles. Um, and I don't, look, I don't, I don't think we've seen what the implications are for the economy yet, um, but they're coming. I mean, you just can't have this type of chaos in such a large uh, group of you know fairly large financial uh, players uh, or, or cogs in the financial uh, you know framework of this country without some relatively large implications yeah just the other day the all in podcast which is you know a big podcast in the investing in financial world and certainly has gotten a lot of play since this story broke was discussing the article that you wrote six days before Christmas in 2022 about Silicon Valley Bank. And they were saying it was written as though somebody had gone in a time machine to warn investors. <laughs> Given the fact that you saw it so clearly, what would you point to or would you allocate blame in, in different corners of the marketplace? Would you put it at the Fed? We've seen the most rapid Fed tightening you know, in, in many eons a huge spike in interest rates that came very suddenly, a lot of kicking COVID consequences down the road. Would you, you know, there's also people talking about blaming the VC community, specifically in tech. How would you look at where we've gotten? Is it regulators? Is it it all the things that I've just mentioned? How do you think about it? Yeah, look, I think there's a lot of blame uh, around to go around. Um, you know, some some people like to lay blame in the feet of some places that make for convenient punching bags, but um, really don't necessarily deserve it. So, uh, like, if if I were to blame, you know, two parties the most, one would be obviously the the management of Silicon Valley Bank. Um, not that they uh, invested, you know, placed capital in the wrong, inst- uh, you know, the wrong types of instruments, but they 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 placed their capital in the wrong instruments here uh you know it, it, at the end of the day and I'll, I'll i'll parse the difference there uh and then obviously i think a lot of the fault falls with the federal bank of san francisco federal reserve bank of san francisco and the occ i mean those are those are supposed to be the two people who are really watching what was going on what goes on at banks um and they didn't just have one failure on their hands they had two they, they had silvergate also um and so um what if we want you want to talk about what initially got me looking in this direction sure so um i i've written a number of articles uh that have you know will reveal my my skepticism over uh cryptocurrencies um and um look i i I don't hate all cryptocurrencies per se. I, I you know, I, I struggle to, um, to assign a true, um, value, concrete value or framework to value them. Um, but you know, if some people have decided that they want to own, uh, cryptocurrencies and are willing to pay a lot for them, you know, who am I to say that, 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 that they're completely insane. I mean, uh, there's a lot of absolutely terrible artwork that I think requires absolutely <laughs> no skill, right? I mean, I, that people will pay a lot of money for. So, you know, does that mean that it's worthless? Well, if some people are willing to pay for it, maybe it's not. What do I know, right? Just my opinion of an asset. Um, but uh, that being said, uh, there was very clearly a lot of bleeding in the crypto space last year, uh, an awful lot of uh, money that had rushed in um, that was then rushing out. And so what happened with Silvergate 
Um, that was a very clear, and I didn't write about it on Seeking Alpha. In hindsight, I should have because I would have gotten a fair amount of credit, I guess. But um, I was short it, uh, and um, we uh, one of the reasons we looked at it, and this is a, a very similar profile to Silver to Silicon Valley Bank, is uh, Silvergate's deposits really kind of exploded in 2021 uh from their uh their their crypto uh exchange network um and you know and you you would think that if uh, a bank has some sort of irrational explosion in deposits that they would not think that the good times that those deposits um couldn't leave as fast as they came in so you think that they would just, you know, invest it in, you know, some sort of cash, short-term, very liquid cash-like type instrument, you know, T-bills or something like that, if they didn't want to hold it on to cash. And then, you know, the uh, those if they if the deposits flew out, that they'd be able to service them, and you say, okay, well, we're going to go back to the, what the size of our business was before, and thanks, guys, we made a few extra bu- bucks here and there, and you know. That was great. Um, and, you know, and frankly, if Silvergate had done something along those lines, it probably would have been fine. But they, they went up and staffed at like an incredible rate. They increased their staffing at an incredible rate. And they and they bought longer dated securities that they uh, that caused an, an awful lot of losses in their balance sheet um, as the those securities um, decreased in value with the increased in, with higher interest rates. Now. The securities themselves are very high credit rated securities. So if the, you hold them to maturity, you're going to get your par back. Um, you're going to get your capital back plus an interest rate. But so what? I mean, I don't necessarily fault them for buying. I mean, they bought a lot of securities that the, the Fed, the feds and the regulators told them to buy. But I don't know if the federal, the regulators, um, the regulars should have said, hey, why are you guys going farther out on the duration curve where, where you're going to get much more your the value of your securities is going to be you know, affected much more by the rise of interest rates? Just stay in the one to two year buckets and the securities won't move up, won't move up and down in value by much. And if your deposits leave and you have to sell the securities, you can fund those deposits. Um, so again, it's not exactly the securities they bought. It's just like the, where they bought, where in the interest rate, where in the duration curve they bought them that caused the problems. So I was looking at, uh, Silvergate and, um, I said, all right, well, let me see if anyone else, you know, had a similar profile in terms of, of scale of the spike of their deposits and Silicon Valley bank really stood out like a sore thumb. And as I, I believe I wrote in my my article, you can trace Silicon Valley's bank, Silicon Valley Bank's growth and its deposits. Um, almost, it's almost a mirror. It's almost a, it exactly tracks the growth of VC investment in the United States that occurred between you know say 2018 and, two, and the end of 2021. Um, and so again, just like Silvergate, you would think that if you are taking in deposits, it's such a an insanely rapid clip, you know, really faster than anything that anyone's ever seen before. That and you're and particularly with the case of, of Silicon Valley Bank, so many of the depositors are companies that burn cash. You would think, okay, well, if the good times stop, and you know, all of a sudden these money burning companies need to pull, need to withdraw their deposits to fund their their losses um that you know we'll have to service those things and instead of so therefore instead of taking that money and uh investing it in longer duration assets for an incremental you know let's say 40 basis points of yield when they when they when they put a, when they invested a lot of those assets and hold a maturity stuff that again you would invest it in one or two year paper t-bills three month paper because and therefore, when the piece of people come to you know withdraw their deposits, okay, you've got the cash, you can do it. You don't have to take massive losses in a portfolio. Um, and and the real 
the real, like, I, I shouldn't say criminal because they didn't, uh, it's, I should, that's a very technical term, legal term. And so, but I, in terms of just uh, the absolute shame of the, of the situation is so much of these, uh, of these assets were not interest bearing. So if you have assets in the door, it's free money. Even if you're only earning when interest rates were really low, even if you're only earning half a percent, so what? You're earning half a percent. It's free money. Why do you have to take a major risk to earn like 1%? Like, like what are you doing? And so um, that's really what led me to uh, to initially start looking at Silvergate, uh, Silicon Valley Bank. I get them confused. I apologize. And then, um, and then um, they had other problems. It wasn't just in their high quality liquid quote unquote uh, asset portfolio. Um, you know, as I started looking at this in November, December, and uh, you know, by then it was very clear that the bubble, the tech bubble had burst. You had some very high profile uh, tech oriented hedge funds had were down, you know, 50, 60% on the year. Uh, venture capital dollars were very clearly pulling back very violently. And um, I looked just at the loan portfolio that Silicon Valley Bank uh, had, and look, there I'm sure I'm sure I'm sure there is some there's some very high quality back loans, but a lot of their loans are also to these early stage companies, and um, you know they classify them different ways. But in really in reality, I think you can probably throw um, you know about 21 percent, or could have thrown about 21 percent of the loan portfolio into early stage slash fairly risky, you know, non-cash generative companies. Um, and I looked at it and said, all right, well, you know what, that, 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 that part of the loan portfolio could be really impaired. Um, and it was so large that just that component of the loan portfolio that every dollar they lost there um, would be a dollar off of uh, book value uh, and importantly, regulatory capital. Um, and so I, I said, wow, this is a situation where you, there are two different ways to win. One is if they have to take, if they have to monetize losses in their higher quality liquid part of their portfolio. And then two, if they, if they take losses in their loan portfolio, um, and neither case is a good place to be. So let me ask you this, given what's happened, how do you see a banking shaking out in terms of big picture? I know that a lot of investors have been, you know, dissuaded by anything bank related, but how do you think it it looks big picture and how do you think investors approach it? Um, and then also I'm curious about what do you do you think this does anything to the regulatory side? Do you think this wakes them up or this is another shock moment and <laughs> they're going to go back to sleep? I don't I really have no idea what the regulators are are going to do. I'm generally blown away by some of the priorities that I yeah. see out there. Uh, you know, people, you know, uh, look, I, I, I think diversity and inclusion are, are really important things to, for, to, for a company to want to deal with. Um, but, you know, if you're a regulator, let the companies deal with that kind of stuff. And you, you focus on soundness. That's your job is be making sure a financial institution is sound. Um, and clearly the regulators um, just failed miserably um, in this in, in, in making sure that these financial institutions were, were sound. Um, and it's not I'm not not being political there that, that just, you know, I, I think that's regulators job is not to uh, engage in any kind of um and in any political view they're just supposed to make sure that the, the 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 walls are are sturdy and the roof won't collapse um and they failed there um in terms of um what the changes are going to be for the banks um look i it, the the irony right now is the front end of the rate curve is a lot yieldier than the back end of the rate curve so to the extent that uh, banks end up having to hold their uh, any any liquid investments uh, without going too far out on the duration curve um, and stay in the front end, um, and it's not going to really hurt them. 
this time around. Uh, if we go to a more normalized uh, yield curve where lower shorter term rates are lower than longer term rates, um, you know, that'll cost them some some dollars. Um, so you might see a fundamental change in uh, the earnings power of, uh, of regional banks at the very least. Um, and my sense is that regional banks, which have uh, faced looser regulations versus the money center banks, the, the banks that were deemed too big to fail, um, I think all banks are basically going to be subject to the same regulations um, because uh, mm-hmm. the the regulators, uh, the various government agencies, they just can't afford to have, um, you know, a uh, a bank, you know, such large banks fail and then have to step in and guarantee deposits above 250000 which, um, look, I, 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 I can understand why they did that in the case of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature. Uh, I think there's all kinds of potential problems with that, with with, with guaranteeing those deposits, though. Um, that leads to all kinds of moral hazard in the future. Um, so I don't know how they're going to deal with that. I don't know, uh, but uh, it's a uh, it's that's fraught with risk. What they've done there. What would you have advised them, or think that they should have done, or is that just the inevitable reality of of making a tough decision? Like I said, I mean, I think they're probably putting the between a rock and a hard place. If if uh, they if they uh, you know if they didn't say that okay, if you've got a if you've got a bank account bigger than two hundred fifty thousand, uh, we'll we'll backstop you. In the case of these two financial institutions, which is Signature and Silicon Valley Bank, um, that they might have had a bigger run on the bank at uh, for large deposit holders at other financial institutions like. Uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, first first republic or something like that. Um, and you know, the 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 people, the, the account holders that have accounts bigger than two hundred fifty thousand, they're typically not individuals, right? They're they're, they're corporations. So there's probably going to have to be a change in how corporations, if they keep their cash at um, regional banks, there's going to be a, a change in how the regional banks. Um, where they put that cash, right? My my sense is that, is that uh, if they want it to be protected in some way, shape, or form, there's gonna it's gonna have to be in something uh, that uh, the you know the banks you know really can immediately access, really without much risk to uh, you know liquidity risk or or mark to market risk. Um, so. Uh, because you know like we've seen if you let a banker just you know take risk without with other people's money and if they lose it don't worry about it the government's got your back you know bankers are going to go far out on the risk curve i mean they just don't i mean you don't blame a tiger for eating a steak um if you put a steak in front of them. um and that's what it's going to happen so there's going to have to be some sort of change to that i think otherwise why would a business keep more than $250,000 of cash in any financial institution? And most businesses need to have, most businesses of any size need to have more than $250,000 of cash or cash-like instruments. Yeah, there's uh, so many different ways to think about what's what's happening right now. Something else that happened on Friday that I wanted to ask you about in terms of looking at what's happening and in terms of how investors should be thinking about things. David Tepper, the famous hedge fund, David Tepper, bought bonds uh, of SVB Financial Group, which is the parent of Silicon Valley Bank. Is that officially announced that he did that? It was reported. Or is that just a report? Report. Good. Important to take me to task. Reportedly, David Tepper bought bonds of of SVB Financial Group. and I think the play there is that the debt value will increase as you know Silicon Valley Bank, the parts of it are are auctioned off. What what do you think about that approaching it in in that way? Speaking to your background as a bond guy, yeah. Uh, look, I mean, um, we uh, by firm we 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 refer to uh, there's certain uh, investors who are, uh, are 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 very big hitters, and there's certain investors who are such big hitters that they're almost planetary in, in size. And then there, 
there's uh, there's maybe one or two guys who are effectively like uh, the sun. And uh, <laughs> I think Tepper probably qualifies as somewhere as a, like the sun in terms of uh, in terms of his uh, of impact on, on credit markets. Uh, his uh, he's as good as they get. Um, the uh, so the question is on the bond value. Uh, you know, again, it depends where he bought them. Uh the uh the the one thing that seems unknowable right now is what happens to the cash at uh what happened to the cash that was at the at the holding company uh silicon valley bank was an operating subsidiary of svb financial which was the holsco which was the uh which is where the stock was and the uh the bonds were issued out of there so uh to the extent so what's what's not quite known yet is how much of the cash that was at the Holdco, which was about two point two billion, plus they had about five hundred million dollars of securities. Uh, I know they own stock and Coinbase and stuff like that. Um, how much of that stays at the holding company versus what the FDIC decides that they are going to pull down into the operating component of the bank, the uh, the opco of the bank. Um, to shore up depositors because depositors get paid back first. Um, so if the um, if the FDIC determined that there was enough, there were enough assets at the uh, at the bank at the opco level, the bank um, that all depositors can be made whole with the liquidation of those assets, then the cash that stays at the holding company plus uh the securities that they own plus the value of the other businesses that are at the holding company they have a, a wealth management business they have an asset management business they have an investment bank so i assume that those will be sold uh for whatever the company can get for them uh and then uh there will be some value to the uh the net operating loss or the nol tax refunds that the uh, that the company gets from all of the losses that are going to be crystallized uh, from the liquidation of the uh, of the company's assets, um, then that's that's a big unknowable too. Um, but um, you know, if as if those assets stay at the holding company, then there's a lot of recovery for the bonds and and even probably some recovery for the preferreds. Um, it's just it's it's just not known. Uh, my guess is. Uh, that uh, you know, Tepper looked at the situation and said it was a better, better than even bet that uh, there would be some assets at the Holdco that would um, be reflected in the value of the bonds. And he's a tough guy to bet against. So, if David Tepper is the sun, maybe retail investors are stars. I don't know how how far to extend that metaphor, but speaking to the retail investors, how do you think is the best way to navigate? The marketplace given everything right now it's going to be volatile uh <laughs> uh because like i said I, I don't think you can have this type of disruption in the financial system without some reverberations i mean i would expect almost all banks given that they don't know the stability of their deposit bases are going to pull back on loans making loans um which is going to crimp the it was going to crimp economic activity, right? Full stop, right? If you need to get a need to get a car loan, you need to get a mortgage. To the extent the banks uh, can't just securitize that stuff right away, and they have to hold it on their balance sheet, uh, they or it could be it, it's there. They might be hesitant to to make those types of loans. Now, I think the Fed will be encouraging them to keep making loans, but you know who knows? Uh, regional banks. You know, make a lot of loans in this in this, in this country, um, and you know, it's if they don't have a clear idea of what their the stability of their funding, then those loans are not going to be um, dispersed so quickly. Um, and that is coming on top of I wrote an article uh, this week of what looks like to be a fairly material slowdown in at least some pockets of the industrial components of this country. The Empire State Manufacturing was terrible, really bad dumb number that came out this week. And Philly Business Outlook, really bad number. 
Um, and you know, those are typically leading indicators of what's going on. But um, you know, if you have a pullback in lending from financial institutions, and then you on, on top of an already softening in the backdrop, that's generally not good for the economy. Yeah. And you also wrote in that article how it would affect housing as well in terms of, you know, mortgage rates. And do you think it extends to pretty much every facet of the economy? Yeah, I mean, look, as uh, as as funding, as long as liquidity goes, you know, people getting being able to access credit uh, goes, so goes the economy. Right. So if there's any kind of interruption of the flow of liquidity, it's going to hit the economy pretty bad. And in terms of specific investments or how to how to best allocate capital and, you know, kind of design your people investors portfolio. I you also wrote an article recently about Schwab in in the in light of uh, you know, the Silicon Valley bank implosion. Um can you speak about maybe stocks or or different uh, you know, trading vehicles, equities that you feel like investors would be wise to look at either? And and you can feel free to go on the long or short side here. Yeah. Um, look, I mean, I, I Schwab, uh, you know, there, there's going to be a component of Schwab that's going to just be a little unknowable. Right. It's going to say, all right, well, how many of their how many of their accounts, you know, get nervous, even though they really shouldn't be nervous. Um, the bulk of Schwab's accounts, the vast bulk of Schwab's accounts are um, under $250,000 of cash. And, you know, most of the, most of the mechanics of that is, 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 you know, is just money that gets swept between trading of securities and money market funds. I mean, does, I, I and my own brokerage account, you know, for years and years, I, I kept very little cash in it. And I just had a money market account. And when I, if I needed to write a check out of it, I wrote a check and the money market account automatically got deducted right, and converted into cash. Um, so, uh, you know, Schwab has access to, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars of liquidity. Um, I really don't think that they are going to have, um, uh, you know, what I will be tr called a, a traditional run on the bank, you know, and, and Schwab's bank doesn't really make that many loans. Um, you know, whereas Silicon Valley bank had, a about, I think it was like 209 billion of, of, uh, 175 billion of deposits. Uh, and they had, um, uh, 209 billion of assets, only about 71 billion of that was loans uh, at Silicon Valley Bank. So that was about, uh, what's that, about 35% or so? I mean, Schwab's like 10. Uh, they, they really don't make too many illiquid type of loans with their capital. Um, and, you know, look, they're just such a, they're such a, a central cog in the machinery of this country. I mean, they have 34 million. Uh, account holders. A lot of those are retirement account holders. Um, now, all of those should be bankruptcy remote, I believe. If Schwab goes down, the uh, the holdings in those portfolio in those accounts should be, you know, should just transfer over to another brokerage. Uh, but you know, there's so many. Schwab is so integrated into so many other parts of the financial system that really most a lot of people just don't even have have no awareness of that. You know, if if you uh, if you're a Schwab account holder and you buy a mutual fund, um, you know Schwab has relationships with those mutual fund companies, and Schwab gets cut of that of the money that gets deposited into a mutual fund. Um, and otherwise, if if they don't, then their account holders can't buy that mutual fund. Uh, Schwab's also custodian for um, is the largest out independent custodian of, our, of registered investment advisors. Um, who put their money with Schwab or with Fidelity because they are really confident that Schwab and Fidelity are going to be, you know, are very, very liquid and very sound financially. Now, now Schwab has some leverage, um, but it's, I think it's, um, it's about, uh, it's like 1.34 X that's it's equity. I mean, it's, it's really not very high. Um, so, uh, but, that not you know that all aside if the feds were going to step in to try to do something to help silicon valley bank and signature bank 
Um, I, they would bend over backwards to keep, make Schwab make sure Schwab was okay. Um, I, you know, I hate hanging my hat on, you know, regulators doing something, doing the right thing. Uh, but uh, you want to talk about an ugly scenario. If Schwab goes down, I mean, the whole, the whole, con- the whole market definitely tanks. Um, so that's why I said, if you want to buy Schwab and you're r- worried about some sort of black swan event, just, you know, buy some puts in on the S on the S and P or buy some puts on the Russell. Because it's going to be that's going to be a very dark day if that happens. I heard uh, Bill Gurley talking at South by Southwest calling the whole Silicon Valley Bank implosion a black swan event. Would you agree with that? No. Yeah. No. no I also didn't no. agree with that. <laughs> no. Well, yeah. look, um, there is a tremendous amount of arrogance within the uh, the tech community that built up over the past 10 years. Um, you know, uh, a lot of. A lot of very good companies generated an enormous amount of of, of, of profits, uh, generated an enormous amount of cash, and, and grew to be, you know, quasi monopolies uh, that are, you know, it's hard to say that they'll they will never be displaced because obviously that you know you can't say that about anybody, but they're very big companies. And then there was the secondary and tertiary companies who uh, grew up in that space. Uh, that uh, maybe never really actually generated huge amounts of profits, but they they attained enormous market values. Um, I mean, look at Carvana. I mean, Carvana was worth, I think, more than at one point was worth more than every single other car dealer in the country um, combined. And it was a money losing business model. But there were a lot of those types of business models that all you had to do was put, uh, you know, AI in the story or some sort of uh, disruption in the story, you know, and and these things got, you know, multi-billion dollars, in some cases, tens of billion dollars of market values. Um, and you can see that in the... Um, in the, the amount of you and the amount of venture capital dollars that got invested in the United States. I mean, I, I think I put it, I, I put the chart in, in the original article about Silicon Valley bank, but um, you know, maybe I'm getting these numbers a little bit wrong, but I think like going back to the, the, the tech bubble, the dot com bubble, you know, like U S investment, U S VC investment was something like $20 billion in 1999. And it went up to $60 billion in 2000. And then it didn't get back up to 1999 levels, really, truly, until like 2014. But, you know, there were an awful lot of very, very arrogant dot-comers back in the day who were, you know, very, would look you straight in the eye and say, yeah, a company should be valued based on eyeballs. Remember that one? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, but what happened in from 2018 to, to 2021 and you know, part of that was driven by the the, the by COVID, uh, but a lot of it was just stuff that was already building. I mean, it, it was it was exponential the growth in U.S. venture capital that went. So we were at maybe forty billion in two thousand and fourteen. I'm sorry, uh, twenty billion in two thousand fourteen, and we went up to like three over three hundred billion, I think, in two thousand twenty one, and that was almost double where we were in two thousand twenty, which was almost double where we were in two thousand nineteen. So, you know, the idea that you can you can invest that type of capital that quickly um, and not be uh, doing it in a relatively irresponsible manner is laughable. I mean, look at the losses at at the SoftBank. I mean, the some of the I mean, yeah, the guy had incredible early hit with Alibaba. All right, fine. But then he dumped money into like WeWork and he let fact lit billions of dollars on fire um and that i think you know fed through the entire um you know silicon valley tech type system um which i think also fed into the arrogance of the management of of silicon valley bank you know they Mm -hmm. saw they didn't see this this spike in u.s venture capital dollars they saw it was oh my god this is going to keep going it's going to keep growing not as a oh my god look at this bubble that's bursting and we better batten down the hatch look at this bubble that's growing inflating 
and let's batten down the hatches for the other side of it, which is was very clear that we're on the other side of it by the <laughs> summer, like, by summer 2022 at the least. Yeah, such good points, such good points. So I don't think it was a black swan. I mean, I think it was to the extent, oh, was do- the dot-com bubble bursting a black swan event? You know, was Lehman Brothers blowing up a black swan event? I mean, it, they were unusual, but they were excesses that were of, that were visible if you were, you know, took off the rose-colored colored glasses. Any color of rose in how you're thinking about First Republic Bank? Is there any kind of positivity to be gained in... And again, any anything that you care to point to in terms of uh, you know specifics in terms of what investors should be should be or could be looking at. I think it was uh, I think it was a really bad data point that the uh, you know you had ten banks inject thirty billion dollars into the company on Thursday and then the stock still dropped a ton yeah. on Friday. Uh, that was that was pretty bad. Um, that doesn't give me uh, warm and fuzzy feeling about uh, the rest of the banking system. And I imagine the dividend suspension didn't give investors much much uh, faith. I mean, the stock was down 80%. If you thought that they weren't going to suspend the dividend, I mean, what are you smoking? Yeah. Right? Yeah. I, you know, one other thing I think this, uh, I think I I told you before we we started this podcast, but, you know, we, we, uh, we actually had our biggest short in uh, Silicon Valley, bonds not in the stock um you know the stock was incredibly volatile uh and there were just some real true believers in it um you know and it's funny so the stock i think hit 800 at one point at its all-time high uh 2021 and by uh the time i started looking at it it was in the low 200s um, which was still above book value um and the uh, the joke of the matter was, uh, you know, they they missed earnings. I think there were a decent number of of places that were betting on the company uh, missing earnings, and they the earnings miss. I wrote about this in my January follow up article. The earnings miss would have been even worse, except somehow those guys marked up the value of their warrants in the fourth quarter. Now, if there's if there's going to be some real questions in terms of there's potential criminality here. I think that would be a good place to look. Uh, I don't know how they marked up the value of the warrants in their investment portfolio. I mean, that is just mystifying to me. Um, but the but even with the miss, that again would have been even worse had they uh, not marked up the value of the warrants. The stock still jumped up to like three thirty at one point uh, in January, February. Uh, so it was it was a it was a spicy meatball to hold on to. Uh, the short there, um, you know, you really had to do it primarily with options, um, which is primarily, which is really the way we played uh, the short on the stock. Um, but the, uh, the, 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 the bonds were, were really, really interesting and a much easier short to hold on to, because I, I want to say that the 10 year bond, you know, bonds trade out a spread over treasury, uh, at least, uh, investment grade bonds do were, and I'll get to that in a second. Um, but, um, you know, these were investment grade bonds and uh, they were trading at a very, very slight premium over treasuries to, you know, money center banks like Bank of America. I think we uh, we initially uh, put the, sh- the short on at somewhere around a little over 200 over the 10 year treasury, whereas Bank of America was only trading at like 175 or 180 at the time. So we were only, um, you know, we were, those bonds were only demanding a less than a half a percent premium to where Bank of America was for 10 year risk. Um, and those are the bonds that really got, those bonds really got clobbered and, and they never really moved that much higher, uh, even when the stock was ripping higher. But, uh, one of the reasons I bring that up, not to pat myself on the back is, um, that Moody's had this bank rated at A3 on Wednesday, the Wednesday that they, you don't say A3. I mean, that's pretty high. That's pretty, that's very high investment grade. And it, it's just like, where were those guys? Because I, I have to believe an awful lot of investment grade bond portfolios just got slaughtered. And thinking that, oh, we've got an A3 rated bank. We're totally safe. Yeah. So speaking to this, uh, as we're winding down here, I could, I could, I could get you for another hour, but I hope that this is just the first conversation we have, and we can get you for longer. I'm back. Um, 
Awesome. Little, thank you. I'm a little verbose, so I apologize if I've been speaking. <laughs> No, no, no. This is the place to be verbose. Verbose and edifying is the combination we're looking for. Um, (laughs) So speaking of all this arrogance and how it gets investors and investing communities into lots of trouble and into bad investments, um, speaking to the humility that I think you that not that I think that uh, I was very um, touched by when we first talked about, you know, this crazy prescient call that you had on, on Silicon Valley Bank, and, and you've seen it very clearly. And then in the next breath, you mentioned your call on, on Signature Bank. So I'd love for you to share with investors, A, the up and down nature of what investing is and, and how to learn the lessons and, and move forward in the right way. Uh, yeah, look, um, we we do try to pair a lot of our longs with shorts or shorts with long. So, um, so I was short Silicon Valley Bank on short Silvergate. Um, I saw Signature Bank uh, had a similar business that uh, Silvergate had and that uh, the stock was getting beaten up because of the decline in Silvergate. And the more I looked at Sil- Signature um, Signature Bank, uh, you know, I said, look, this is a pretty traditionally a uh, traditionally a conservatively run bank. Um, you know, they made money in 2008 and 2009. Uh, they had a very low efficiency ratio, which is uh, that's uh, the lower the efficiency ratio, the more uh, efficient a bank is run. So, uh, you know, these guys had a, a crate. I think it was in the, in the low 30s. Um, so I said, OK, look, this is a, a, a well, a expense conscious, conscious, um, well, you know, bank that doesn't go far out on the risk curve on their loans that they make. Um, and, um, you know, they. They took on a business in uh, their their the crypto uh, the crypto exchange network. I think it's called Signet. Um, that was really just a fee vehicle. It was just a fee generating vehicle. They they really didn't, um, as far as I understood, they didn't make any loans to any uh, any crypto companies. They didn't take any crypto risk. Um, but clearly, I under I underestimated the uh, the the taint that that business brought to the franchise um and i'm still not entirely clear why the regulators shut them down um they got that look if first republic got caught in the vortex of this regional bank uh storm then uh you know and you know again if charles schwab got caught in this vortex um, it's really not surprising, I guess, in hindsight, that a regional bank like Sign- Signature, which also had uh, this crypto exchange network, um, that it would uh, be not viewed in the in the uh, kindest light by the regulators. Um, part of me wonders if the regulators uh, had so much egg on their face um, that they just decided, okay, we're just not even going to take any, any risks. We're just going to shut these guys down. Although it's, it's still very bizarre to me that the same announcement on Sunday where they guaranteed the deposits, uh, at, uh, Silicon Valley bank, uh, that theoretically would take care of any kind of liquidity rush against uh, a bank, such as signature that they, in the same announcement that they announced the, the seizure of signature, um, not that it's funny, I shouldn't be laughing, but, um, look, uh, the one thing I'll say in my defense is that, uh, you know, the entire ground changed, uh, shifted under the feet of, uh, of, of every regional bank, including signature. Um, and there was definitely time to de-risk, uh, the name on, uh, on Thursday and Friday, uh, as the entire regional bank world was being lit on fire. Um, and, um, you know, for us, it was a, uh, it was a smaller position versus a much larger short in, uh, in Silicon Valley bank and Silvergate. And we do try to, we do try to pair things up a lot. Um, and I wish, I certainly wish it did not, um, break down. You know, I, I'm still, I'm still not entirely clear to me why signature uh, went down. It seems to be not in the news um, for the exact reasons of what exactly happened there, I think the postmortem postmortem will be will be really interesting. But uh, really, none of the things that I saw in Silicon Valley Bank or Silvergate uh, were present at Signature. If there was something else under the hood 
that crept there over the past couple of years that wasn't uh, uh, readily available and publicly available information, um, then you know clearly uh, you know that that sucks um, and it's uh, something to um, keep you uh, humble. And look, I, it's one thing I've learned in doing this for a living for now over twenty years, and it's uh, the markets will always keep you humble. Yeah. Now, I appreciate that honest take. I think life itself will always keep us humble. So it's important to recognize that we can do our best to pay attention and, and be, you know, um, aware, but then also stuff happens beyond anybody's control. Uh, and that's part of it, unfortunately. Yeah. So as we're winding down, and again, thank you so much for joining us and sharing such such really deep insights. And I, I found this very edifying. I imagine all investors listening will as well. Um, what can you share with the Seeking Alpha audience and perhaps those listening that aren't yet the Seeking Alpha audience? What are you up to or what do you have coming up in terms of your writing and analysis? A lot of my analysis, I mean, my, my, my handle is Cashflow Hunter um, to play on a name of a Yankees pitcher from the 70s. It'll sort of give an idea of my, my age um, but uh, and my, uh, my sports affiliations. But... Um, I I really like to focus on on cash flows and balance sheets. Uh, so if you're looking for the next hot tech stock, uh, you probably don't want to read my stuff. If you're a little bit more of a conservative investor and you are uh, you're looking for um, you know buying, I like to buy dollars. I don't I don't like to pay ninety five cents. I like to pay uh, fifty cents. That's sort of my favorite. <laughs> I like to get tight think. Uh, assets on the on the cheap um and i also like to capture what i think are very safe cash flows at very high yields so uh you know i've i've been writing regularly about a handful of mlps um if you ask me those are still st i mean those have traded a little bit off with the weakness in oil and natural gas recently but i i think those are just tremendous values um and uh they are um they're actually relatively easy to understand these days, which is a nice change from the past. Um, so I'll, I'll keep writing about those. And, um, you know, I, I think I will be uh, this explosion in the financial has um, created a lot of uh, detritus <laughs> or uh, shrapnel, however you want to describe it in the uh, the banking space. So uh, I think there's going to be a lot of places to pick up value. Um, but you're probably going to want to see where things shake out. And there's no reason to go far out on the risk curve here. I, I think you people want you want to be careful. Um, and I'll compound that with uh, the uh, the economy is definitely is uh, not definitely nothing's definite. Uh, I think the economy is in a re relatively vulnerable spot here from the uh, what I anticipate to be a relatively material pullback of uh, credit availability and liquidity. Uh, on top of what is already a relatively slowing economy, in my opinion, and therefore, um, you know, that's going to cause all kinds of um, of dislocations in, in companies' business models and their profits. And so, um, you know, you got to be careful. Yeah, absolutely. Detritus is a great place to end it on. A great word to use. Normalize good vocabulary. Normalize smart investing. Cash flow hunter. Thanks again for taking the time. Really appreciate it. And. Uh, like all good conversations, I'm looking forward to the next one. Same here. Just a reminder, anything you hear on this podcast should not be considered investment advice. This is for entertainment purposes only, and you should seek advice from a licensed professional before investing. If you enjoyed the episode, leave a rating or review on your favorite podcasting app, and we'll see you soon with a new episode.